All right, so I have a handout for you guys again. So um, does anyone need a pen? Because I did not grab those from the prayer room. So if someone does, I can get them. Actually, Josiah would get them. Oh, she's got a bunch of pens, so we're good. Yeah, everyone must give Kelsey back a pen if you borrow one. So there you go, Sandra. Can you hand that to Avi, please? Thank you. Anyone need one? Wow, silence. Here you go, ma'am. I'm almost tempted to borrow one just so I have it. <laughs> Kelsey, I'm going to need three pens, please. Something wrong with your glasses? Yeah. Oh. Playing sports or something? Yeah. Should have caught it. Two, three, four, five, six. And there's three. So it should be, should be good. Everyone got one? Good? Okay. Oh, yeah. There you go. Phone's ringing. Might be Jesus. You might want to answer it. All right. So... If, uh, oh, I forgot the clipboards too. Wow, I'm just winning at life. Uh, does anyone need a clipboard to be able to write on? We do have some clipboards in the back. You can use the, uh, the hardcover Bibles are under the seats as well. You can use that if you need something. Um, there are some clipboards in the back. Please feel free to help yourself. So uh, what we're going to do is we will give you time tonight, as we've done uh, the past so many weeks, to read over the text. Um, go ahead and make observations, notes, um, mark that up. We'll give you probably about five minutes or so um, to do that. Uh, the psalm we're looking at is Psalm 48. Um, as far as the psalms we've looked at, this is a little bit longer. So there are verses on the back. So please make sure you, you look at the back there. I think there's like three verses on the back maybe. Um, so please note that as well. But go ahead and take a few minutes. And we will give you some time to make observations, make some notes, and then we'll talk about it in just a, a little bit. So go ahead and get started.
All right. So we're right at about five minutes. So if you guys haven't finished up just yet, obviously there's a lot to look at. So um, we'll go through it together. And then I encourage you to obviously make more notes as you have time later. Um, the one thing I would encourage you maybe to do that might help, as we're going to kind of do it when we break the psalm apart, is off to the left-hand side, um, maybe make a little, couple little brackets here. So we're going to bracket together uh, verses 1 through 3. So that's one group. So maybe bracket together off to the left-hand side, make a little bracket there for one verses 1 through 3. Verses 4 through 7 is another bracket of verses. Verses 8 through 11. And then the last would be verses 12 through 14. And we'll kind of explain a little bit about those brackets in just a moment. Um, as you read through here, there's some various phrases, uh, different things that maybe jumped out to you. Um, and we'll try our best to walk through those. Um, but when I read through this the first time, uh, the flow, to be honest, kind of threw me a little bit. Um, I had to keep stopping and saying, well, who's the they? Who's this person? Who's this group? Uh, what's this group referring to? So again, sometimes that'll happen as you read through here. So hopefully we'll be able to walk through this. So what I want to do is give you some background first on the psalm, kind of what's going on historically, the timeline that we believe this psalm is taking place. And then we'll go through those groupings of verses that we gave you and explain kind of what's happening there. So uh, this is one of three psalms celebrating Jehovah's victory in delivering Jerusalem from the Assyrians. So there's three Psalms, 46, 47, 48. Psalm 46, 47, 48. And what they're doing, those three Psalms, are celebrating Jehovah's victory, the Lord's victory, in delivering Jerusalem from the Assyrians. The Assyrians. Now, we've heard that name before. Uh, many of you know that the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, and so, again, this is referring to Jerusalem and more the southern kingdom. The timeline of the events referred to in this psalm is most likely, and this is, again, just based on studying and just different opinions on this, but it seems like the common, normal way of looking at this is the time uh, when Assyria sieged Jerusalem and God provided a great victory through King Hezekiah approximately 701 B.C., so somewhere around that timeline. The Assyrians sieged around Jerusalem and camped around Jerusalem, and then God gave a great victory through King Hezekiah. Now, I'm going to give you some references, some Old Testament references to write down. We're not going to turn there for time's sake, but I'll give these to you so you can jot them off to the side somewhere, uh, maybe even on the back, and you can go back and look at these and kind of familiarize yourself with these events. So the first one would be Second Chronicles chapter 32. So Second Chronicles chapter 32. Isaiah chapter 10 verse 8. And then the rest are going to be in Isaiah. So just more verses in Isaiah. So you got Isaiah 10, 8. Isaiah 14, 24 through 27. So Isaiah 14, 24 through 27, and Isaiah 36 and 37, meaning the chapters. So chapter 36 and 37. So again, those verses, 2 Chronicles 32, Isaiah 10, 8, Isaiah 14, 24 through 27, Isaiah chapters 36 
and 37. So those are going to give you a background of what we're talking about was happening in the timeline of what this psalm is referring to. Also, what are just some quick, uh, you can answer, what are some locations or some places talked about in this psalm? There's a couple different locations spoken of here. Mount Zion, okay, yeah. Tarshish is mentioned, okay. City of God, right? Go ahead. Okay, city of God, right? Uh, city of the king, the great king, right? The city of the king, those kind of things. And so I want to focus in on one of these phrases, and it's Mount Zion, okay? Because that's a, a phrase you've probably heard quite a bit. Uh, in this psalm, again, we read about Mount Zion, and if you're not familiar with the background, um, I'll give you kind of the background on this location. Because the original location, it's somewhat, it's still there, but the name Zion has taken more of a, a greater meaning than just the one location, all right? So Zion was actually a fortress outside of Jerusalem. And if you want all of this, I can give you my notes later. So you don't have to try to write all this down because um, I'm going to read quite a bit. All right. But if you want to write down some of it, that's fine too. Uh, Zion was a fortress outside of Jerusalem when the city was under the control of the Jebusites. The Jebusites. This is a tribe in Canaan. Uh, so this was a fortress that they created. They built uh, it also became the familiar name of the hill on which the fortress stood. So Mount Zion is, was this fortress that sat on a hill outside of Jerusalem. When David captured the stronghold of Zion and defeated the Jebusites, uh, he called Zion the city of David. So now it went from just this fortress to now it's this idea of the city of Jerusalem is referring to now as Zion. Uh, I'll give you some references. Second uh, Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 through 9. I know I'm giving you a lot of verses, but Second Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 through 9. First Kings uh, chapter 8, verse 1. So First Kings chapter 8, verse 1. First Chronicles 11, 5. First Chronicles 11, 5. And Second Chronicles five two, so those verses again. Second Samuel five six through nine, First Kings eight one, First Chronicles eleven five, Second Chronicles five two, giving us background on this idea of Zion and how this Zion connects to the city of God or the city of Jerusalem. Uh, so again, just a connection there. When Solomon uh, built the temple on Mount Moriah. And move the Ark of the Covenant there. The word Zion expanded in meaning to include also the temple and temple area. So you kind of see how it's expanding. It was this one little location, but now it's being used for this different terminology to refer to basically the city of God, the temple of God, the area around the temple. And again, representing more than just that one location. It was a short step until the word Zion became used to refer to, again, the city of Jerusalem, the people of God began to be under this title, and even the land of Judah. So again, it's taken on greater meaning, okay? All still connected to this idea of God delivering, God bringing about this city of Jerusalem and his temple, and all the things connected to those promises of the covenant. Um, most of that came out of Nelson's Bible Dictionary. So if you're looking for more study, you can look into Nelson's Bible Dictionary, and they have a great section on Zion and what the background is on that area. So again, 
this is a connection to this understanding of when he says in um, verse 2, beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. So again, this is in their understanding, it's not just this one little location. It's referring to so much more than that. It's, it could be the city of Jerusalem, the temple, the temple mound, the temple area. So there's more involved here than just that. Again, just giving you more background on what the psalm is referring to. Um, the author of this psalm is be- believed to be uh, the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah, K-O-R-A-H. This, these would be descendants of a Levite that we read about in number 16, named Korah. He actually led a revolt against Moses, if you're familiar with that story. And apparently some of his descendants, who would be Levites, were ministers of music in the tabernacle during the time of David and following. So again, this, this, these descendants became involved with music, which again shows the connection to psalm and the psalms, which were usually sung. Okay, so there's a connection there. Now, I'm not making any connection that people who are or were ministers of music are automatically rebellious to the men of God. I'm not making that connection. So if anyone here was a minister of music, is in some way involved in leading music, I'm not making that implication. I'm just saying that's the history of it, okay, Keith? So I'm just, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't want to call it out like that, but seems to be the case. So, um, we're thinking, Donnie, <laughs> oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. All right. Ooh, that just brought up. Anyway, so that was a good one. I like that. Right off the cuff. Okay. He's a quick one. He sure is. Um, okay. So this idea here is that there's, again, this idea of worship. Okay. That's the whole point of the psalm, that the sons of Korah are writing this as an expression of a celebration of what God has done. So they're referring back to When this was written, this is referring back to this time of deliverance. So it's a little bit of a confusing timeline. We have the psalm written here, but they're referring back to this time over here. But to us, we're looking back to when the psalm was written, which is when the temple has already been built. This is actually the dedication, most believe, of the second temple. Okay, which would be involved in the book of Ezra. So again, you see a lot of timelines here. So in the time of Ezra, they're singing this. They're, they're recounting this great deliverance that God did from the Assyrians many, many, many years before. Okay? So again, it's this idea of carrying through this time of worship. Another point to make, and I kind of gave you the outline of the psalm. We bracketed those verses together. Another point to make about the structure of the psalm is that it follows the Hebrew Um, symmetric pattern, the Hebrew symmetric pattern. This would be three lines, four lines, four lines, three lines. So you see that pattern in the psalm itself, okay? Again, which was a structure used often in this Hebrew writing. We see this in poetry today. Different poems have different structures, different stanzas arranged different ways. Again, that's how we see this structure in this psalm. So, Now we want to dive into the psalm itself and we'll start breaking apart the verses. Any questions about anything we've gone through so far? I know I gave you a lot of information and verses and dates and all that stuff. Yes, ma'am. Is the mountain of his holiness, is that part of Mount Zion? So to me, when I read through here, and we'll get to it in a little bit, I I believe I mentioned it later as well. um, 
I, I would see that being a connection to Mount Zion, this all-encompassing temple, the, the, the presence of God's holiness, which would be the Holy of Holies in the temple, which again, that's where I would say that the temple mound and the temple at some point began associated with Zion. It all kind of became all-encompassing the city of Jerusalem. So I would say that, yes, now some could suggest maybe it's Mount um, Sinai, where the, the law was given. Uh, I don't see that in the psalm. I see the connection in the context refers more to the temple, the temple mound, that place of his holiness. Um, but again, I mean, maybe there's somebody that has a different view on that. That's just how I read the text. So looking into the psalm, let's go into that first group of three. And if you want to jot out to the side, um, in studying for this, Warren Wiersbe, I love the way he groups or I should say the title he gave to these groupings. Um, and so the title, I'm going to use his titles for these groupings. Um, and the first one was God and their city. So verses one through three refers to God and their city. So the emphasis to open and close the psalm is to glorify God and his greatness. Man, when you look at that first verse, it's, it's so powerful the way he says this. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. That's such a powerful way to phrase that. He is great, and in our praise, we praise him greatly. Okay? What comes to your mind when you think about that? That we should praise him greatly. He's greatly to be praised. What, what comes to your mind? How would you describe that differently or explain that to someone, what the psalmist might be saying there? Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, we're not just spectating worship. We're not just casually in worship. We're engaged in the worship, right? We're in the moment. We know what we're singing. We know why we're singing it. We're involved. I, I love that. Absolutely. To worship him in spirit and in truth, right? We're connected in that worship. What else comes to mind when you think about this, this phrase, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised? What else comes to mind? Right. And then as we are praising and worshiping him, we're not doing it just in our tradition, ritual. Mm -hmm. Just going through the motions. We are truly praising him and worshiping him. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Not out of tradition, not out of just because, okay, in my church, I now stand, I sit, I sing, I do whatever. There's, there's a deeper level to it. I know who he is, and I know who I am in him. So it brings greater depth to the worship. There's, there's substance there. There's something there. Absolutely. What else comes to mind when you think of this phrase, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised? Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. No, we should, we should come to worship with the right heart. Yep, in reverence. But if obviously if we come in the wrong heart, if we're allowing ourselves to be led through the worship, we're going to get to the right place. But if I come with the wrong heart and choose to keep the wrong heart, I'm going to leave going, I got nothing out of that worship. I used to, I always was amazed when we'd go to chapel at BBC. And we were so blessed to have speakers and pastors from all over the country, all over the world, come and speak in chapel. I mean, you don't get to experience that two times a week every week for an entire semester, year after year. Most people go to the same church, hear the same 
boring pastor week in and week out, right? But the, what an opportunity to hear from people. And one of the ones that always stuck out to me was when my friend Stephen from Israel, when his dad came from Israel to preach in our chapel. And as he's going to the stage, he's limping because he had just gotten stabbed because of his faith in Israel. And he goes to the platform and he preaches this message. And after that chapel, I was talking to some kids and I was like, man, that was so moving. And one of the kids literally said, yeah, I don't know. I didn't get that much out of it. I about fell over. I was like, what are you talking about? And you hear that stuff all the time. Well, I didn't really, you know, I didn't get a lot out of that worship service. It's not really my, here's that word, style. And I look at this and I go, whoa, 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 whoa. If I come with the right heart, I can never leave without saying, man, you, God, you gave me so much in that that I didn't deserve. And now we come to worship, why? To express praise to God. But what happens is we're expressing praise to God. He's blessing us. He's filling us. And this is why, and I, I tell the praise man this, I've told him before, the first song we do of worship is not a get to your seat song. Oh, I got to go sit down. They're starting music. And then we come in and about maybe two thirds way through the song, we might start singing a little bit. That first song after greet time is not a, oh, I got to stop talking and go find my seat. Man, this is worship. This is, this is singing praise to our God. And I think we miss out. I, I say we, because I've done this. We miss out on engaging in that. Ah, it's just one verse. You know, there's three other verses, right? Which I used to think it was funny when we, when we do hymns and hymn books back in the day. One, two, four. Well, what's the third verse? Well, what's wrong with the third verse? I like the third verse. Let's sing that, okay? But when you think about this, we just miss out on these things. Well, there's other verses. Okay, but, but why would you not be hungry to engage in as much worship as possible? Why would I look to myself and say, oh, well, the music was a little longer. The preaching was a little longer. This was, I would have rather had. It's just worship. And again, it's not just when the music's playing. It's when we gather as the body of Christ to worship and encourage each other. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and that's why I love the word meditate when in the word in the book of Psalms when it talks about meditate on the word of God day and night. That word meditate means to speak or, or mumble to yourself. So what we're doing is we're speaking to ourselves the word of God. Why? Because we're all human. I think Kelsey even said that. We don't always have the right heart. We don't have our attitude. We let things get us down. So what do we do? We remind ourselves that he is great and greatly to be praised. And it changes our whole focus. It changes our attention. What comes to my mind when I think about this phrase is when does that stop? When does greatly to be praised cease to be true? So that means for eternity future, 
in any state we find ourselves, whether we're with him in his kingdom, his new kingdom on earth, new heaven, new earth, we will never cease to declare this to be true. So what we just read is basically the job description of followers of Christ for eternity. For eternity, we will declare this. When you read Revelation, if you had to summarize all the things we see in Revelation about what's happening in heaven and the songs and the, the worship given to the Lamb, how could you really summarize it better than, man, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. The Lamb is worthy, right? That's the whole point of Revelation. The Lamb is worthy who was slain. That's the point. He is great and greatly to be praised. And so we need to understand this will go on and on forever. And we get to be a part of this. We get to declare in ways that nothing else in creation can, by the way. We get to declare that he is great and greatly to be praised. So again, the emphasis to open and close. And if you look at the end of the psalm, that's the idea. Verse 14. For this God is our God, and we'll unpack that forever and ever. He will be our guide even until death. And this God is our God, and we will praise him. Yes, Hezekiah, we'll go back to the setting of this psalm. Hezekiah was a, a godly man that prayed and sought the Lord. The city of Jerusalem was a great city. There's lots to look to here. But the psalmist starts with praising the one that worked in all and through all to bring glory to his name. He doesn't start with Hezekiah. Now, he was a, he was a, a good king. He did the right thing. Jerusalem is a great city. They're going to get to that. If you read through, you're going to find out, wow, this is a beautiful place. And God has positioned it perfectly where it needs to be. But it doesn't start there. The psalmist starts with God. So uh, also we see here, the city of the great king, I believe, is referring to David, but also it could be Hezekiah, if you want to think of it that way. But I tend to think it's referring to David because, again, David is the one that's kind of connected with Jerusalem, okay? So I believe the city of the great king is referring to David. Also, the phrase at the beginning of verse 2, beautiful for situation. Does anyone have a different translation that you went and looked at a different translation to see what yours said? Yeah, what did it say? Okay, any other translations? Okay, beautiful in elevation. That, that's really what it's talking about. It's literally an elevated city, okay? Uh, it's roughly 2,500 feet above sea level. So when, when the psalmist is saying this beautiful for situation, it's really saying beautiful in its position. It's elevated. We look up to it, okay? There's a beauty in that. Um, also in this psalm, we see the personification of the city by calling Jerusalem her. The Bible does this often. Uh, another example of this would be wisdom in Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, it talks about wisdom and personifies wisdom. Um, also in this uh, passage here, verses 1 through 3, uh, we see the phrase, a place of refuge. We see this at the end of verse 3. God is known in her uh, palaces for a refuge. So her being, again, the city of Jerusalem, a place of refuge, or another way we could say this, what comes to mind when you think of refuge? What does refuge make you think of? Safety. Okay. What? A tower. Strong, right? Okay. Protection. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. It's a place of protection and safety. Now, here's the question we have to ask. When was... It being a place of refuge revealed to those that lived in Jerusalem. 
When do they become aware that this is a place of refuge? Okay, yeah, when the Assyrians have you completely surrounded, you realize, God, this is a place of safety. This is a God, God, this is a place of protection. So again, remember, it was only revealed when God allowed them to be sieged and come against and attacked. It was revealed during a time of great difficulty. And it was also revealed when God defeated the Assyrians and protected his people. So we will never know thinking about our own application, we will never know the refuge our God is until we find ourselves under attack from the enemy. So often we think, God, why would you ever allow me to go through this? Because God is trying to get us to understand he is our place of protection. He is our place of safety. So instead of looking at trials and persecutions as negatives, realize they can draw us to trusting in his mighty hand even more than we did before. So again, this place of refuge is actually a great blessing, a great blessing. Let's look at that next section there, verses 4 through 7. So now we're going to see, again, giving all the credit uh, to Warren Worsby for this title, God and their enemies. So we see God in their city. Now we see God and their enemies. So verses 4 through 7, um, it says here, For lo, the kings were assembled, they passed by together. They saw it, and so they marveled. They were troubled and hasted away. Fear took hold upon them uh, there, and pain as of a woman in travail. Thou breakest the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. Now, there's a couple phrases in there. We have to stop and go, whoa, whoa, what's this talking about? So we'll break that down. But here, many believe when it says, uh, for lo, the kings were assembled. This is referring to the Assyrian king. This would be um, Sennacherib, King Sennacherib. That's how I say it. If you say it differently, that's fine. Um, but that's where you're going to get those examples and those names rather from the passages I gave you earlier. Um, also, we see it not just him, but also uh, vassal kings. These are kings that owe allegiance to another king. So there was Sennacherib and other kings that were with him that owed allegiance to Assyria. And they came and besieged Jerusalem. So these kings came. And what does it say happened as they assembled together and passed by together? They're passing by the city. What does the psalm say was the first thing that happened? They marveled. Okay, what are they marveling at? The beauty of the city. Right? This is kind of what the psalmist is saying. They looked up and they saw the city and it was, it was appealing. Okay? There was something appealing about it. Uh, so they marveled at its beauty. And what, what did that lead them to do? Wanted to possess it. They wanted to, to take it over. They wanted to have it as their own. And so then we read, not only did they marvel over the city and want to possess the city, but then what, what happened? What does the psalm say happened next? They were troubled, okay? They were troubled or panicked. All of a sudden, now there's fear. So what's happening? Uh, they were troubled by God's obvious hand fighting for his people. Now, again, if you go back and read those passages I gave you, you're going to find out that God sent his angel to defend the city. Um, some, or some of the passages I referred to, uh, the angel killed roughly 185,000 Assyrian troops. So what happens next in the psalm? They were troubled, and then what happened? 
They hasted away. I kind of like the King James when it says that. They hasted away. Another way to say this, they fled away. They, they ran away. One actually says they, they fled away in alarm. So imagine for a moment here this scene. By the way, think about this for a second. One angel, one angel, and as best I can tell when reading the text, that's what it says. One angel, his angel, came and defended the city and 185,000 Assyrian troops fell. Now think fast forward to the New Testament. When the Bible talks about the fact that Jesus could have called for the angels. Not one angel, but angels. That would have not have been a small group of people perishing. That would have been, we're done now. We're talking Noah level, right? We're talking eradicate all of creation. And Jesus had the power to do it. By the way, we're also talking about a savior that could speak a word in the name of God and soldiers fall to the ground. So the power of God is really what's on display in this story. And yet so often, do we pray like this is our God? Man, we see one little thing come against us and we freak out because we think, how could God ever overcome that? So here again, they fled away in alarm. Now, let's look at these uh, phrases that we see here in verses 6 and 7. In verses 6 and 7, we see two uh, figures of speech used that explain the degree that they were defeated. This is explaining the degree to which they're defeated. First, their pain was like that of a woman giving birth. A woman giving birth in the sense that judgment came swift and sudden. It was swift. It was just on them. Okay. So it was pain, but it was a surprise. They were caught off guard by this. Okay. It wasn't expected. They were in pain quickly. The second kind of phrase we see here is destruction was like that of a storm destroying a fleet of ships. That's what's being referred to there in that phrase, the ships of Tarshish and an east wind. Again, remember this, if you read those examples I gave you in scripture, they surrounded Jerusalem. There was no naval battle, right? When I first read this, I was like, wait a minute. What ships were involved? They're in Jerusalem. Like, did they, what? So the more I studied that, I found that that was one commentator's way of describing that, that it's basically saying in the same way a storm can come up out of nowhere and overtake a group of ships and destroy those ships completely. That's what we see here as an example, as the psalmist is saying, of the destruction level that took place. So we see here it was quick. It was sudden. Uh, it was overpowering. There was nothing they could do against it. And again, it's just the power of God on display. Note also how verse 7 begins. How does verse 7 begin? With what word? Thou. Who's getting the glory? God is getting the glory here. So again, it's important to note this. Thou, not we. We didn't do this. God did this. God took care of this. God provided this deliverance like that, as we talked about on Wednesday night, of the Israelites and the Red Sea. God stepped in and overcame obstacles that they could not see past. But God provided a way. Letter, or uh, the next one here, the next group, uh, verses 8 through 11. We see here God and their worship. God and their worship. So again, uh, let's look at the psalm. As we have heard, verse 8, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever. Selah. Uh, now, I would suggest the city of the Lord of hosts and the city of our God are both referring to Jerusalem. Verse 9, we, now we see, 
us involved or the people involved, right? Thou did this, but now we respond to what you've done. We have thought of thy loving kindness, O God, in the midst of thy temple. According to thy name, O God, so is thy praise unto the ends of the earth. Thy right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion, again, now we're going back to the idea of the location, rejoice, not just a spot, but also the people of God, the people in the city. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah, so again, expanding out a little farther, be glad because of thy judgments. I love this passage, and it talks about this idea of worshiping God for who he is. This psalm could, again, have been shared during the time of the dedication of the second temple in Ezra chapter 6, verse 22. So Ezra chapter 6, verse 22. Quick reminder, Bible timeline. Ezra is taking place after the Babylonian captivity. They're coming out of the Babylonian captivity. Isn't it interesting? They were spared from the Assyrians. But what did Isaiah tell Hezekiah? God will spare you now, but what? This isn't going to stop the future judgment. It's just putting it off. So they go into captivity under the Babylonians. They return from that, and they're dedicating the temple. They're dedicating the second temple, if you will. And it's at this point, it's believed they recount this great blessing of deliverance that God had given them. Again, worshiping God for all that he is. Uh, This section, uh, 8 through 11, is a time of praise and remembering all God has done. Their minds are centered on the loving kindness of God. The loving kindness of God. So because their minds are focused on the loving kindness of God, as a result, they went to worship in the temple. That's, that's the result, right? That's what happens. When I'm fixed on him, I'm going to want to be with God's people worshiping our God. When my mind's not fixed on him and I'm allowing other things to distract me, I'll make excuses. I'll make all kinds of excuses because my mind's not fixated on the things of God. And this is why I think it's in a sense, in a sad way, humorous when I have Christians tell me, well, I don't have to go to church to worship. That's true. You can worship God 24-7. But as a follower of Christ, there should be a desire to be with God's people. Why? Because my mind is fixed on the things of God. I want to be with God's people, worshiping our God, hearing of what God is doing. And so again, this is what we see the people doing even in the Old Testament. They went to the temple to worship and be with God's people. When we fully know what God has done for us in delivering us from our enemies, which for the New Testament believers, that is the enemy of sin, enemy of death, and enemy of hell, we will desire and long to worship him with others who have experienced deliverance. That's why there is nothing greater than worshiping with God's people, who have all equally said, we are unworthy of the love of God and the grace of God, but he's given it to us and we worship together as the redeemed. And I believe God is pleased in that. I believe God... I believe that brings joy to the heart of our Father when we do that. So church involvement, again, does not create worship in us. Worship in us to God will create the desire for church involvement. And we have to get it that way. If we get it the other way, it's legalism. But if it's a relationship-based, it's that worship in us. As we worship him for all he is and what he has done to God, we worship God for that. That will create in us the desire to be involved with the body of Christ. Last section. And then we'll give you a time if you have any questions or other thoughts or comments on the psalm. So verses 12 through 14. So on the back there, God and their future. God and their future. So one commentary suggests that after the worship was complete, perhaps one of the sons of Korah or one of the groups that were leading uh, possibly came in contact with a group of pilgrims that would have been there, people that didn't know the story. 
And some have suggested that these people were then presented and kind of toured the city, where then they were shown the, the beauty of the city, or shown this idea of what God had done. And so let's look at these verses together. So walk about Zion and go round about her. So again, not Zion, just that little spot outside of Jerusalem. Now we're talking about the city, okay? So it's all-encompassing. Tell the towers thereof. That word tell, you could also put the word count. Count the towers thereof. Make note of this place. Mark well her, her bulwarks. Consider her palaces, that ye may tell it to the generation following. Passing down this knowledge is what we're talking about there. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. Now, when he talks about the towers, um, that word uh, bulwarks uh, is outer walls. It's the outer walls of the city. It's the beauty of the design of the city itself. Some have also said this is referring to the defensive nature of the city. That there's defenses there that God has given the city to defend itself. Um, however you want to look at it, there's just this idea we're looking to the beauty of the city. We're looking at what God is doing in this place. Uh, the key to this section, though, is clear. It's the clear understanding that future generations who will also see the city will not focus only on the defenses that protect the city, but the God who will protect the city. So saying, look at all these defenses we have, but God is the one that delivered us. So it's this idea of recognizing that it's greater than what you see. The Lord is to be our guide, not only during times of trial, but every single day until we step from this world and into his presence. That's how verse 14 ends. He will be our guide even until death. It's not just in this moment or that moment, he's our guide for life. So notice again in verse 14, for this God is our God. Our God. See, there's an intimate connection here. It's personal. There's a relationship as well with this God with, and the children of Israel. There's a connection here. It's deeper than just the God we worship. It's our God. And this is the heart of really the Psalms, isn't it? He's my shepherd. He cares for me. There's a loving kindness here. And again, drawing our attention to him. This God is our God, and not only in this life, but forever and ever. In the Old Testament, they had a more limited understanding of the afterlife. However, one thing was clear to them, that their relationship with God did not cease at death. That he was there for them even after death. You could translate until death as over death. He will be our guide even over death. What comes to mind there? That greater than death, this physical death will not separate me from my God. Showing what we know, that even the de that death cannot separate us from the love of Christ, Romans chapter 8. So isn't it amazing how God revealed in a different way, and not maybe as full a picture, but to where the psalmist understood, no, no, he's our God forever. And then in Romans 8, we see the fullness of that picture through Christ. That, no, no, you are children of God with the gift of the Holy Spirit, and he will be your God forever. You will never be separated from the love of Christ as children of God. And so, again, just a beautiful picture of this relationship. So, Psalm 48, an amazing celebration of what God has done, his delivering hand. And again, we see this often on the pages of Scripture where God's people rejoice in what God has done. And it just leads them to celebrate and to worship and to realize that God is greater. 
Um, any, any closing thoughts, comments, questions, anything else that comes to mind with this psalm? Yes, ma'am. Yes. And then just thinking about like them being burned at the stake and singing, you know, like the forty eight like sing the forty eight and like just knowing that they knew who God was and like even in the midst of the flames they could sing this because yeah. like they knew who God was. It's just amazing. Yeah. No, yeah. And I Yeah. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. No, praise the Lord. Yeah. No, and I think what you just said is true of many of us as believers is that for whatever reason, I mean, I know um, many Christians who love the Lord and have a great relationship with Christ, but really have never read much of the Old Testament because a lot of Christians would think, oh, Old Testament, that's for the Jews. That's for them. It's not, I'm New Testament. And there's truth to that, obviously. We're, we're New Testament believers. But again, like you said, we rob ourselves of that fullness of that picture. And, and I'm guilty of that just as much as anyone else, where only until the last so many years that I really start getting into reading and studying more Old Testament passages and different things that before I would have just skimmed over. Like, well, it's just a listing of who's begot who's and it's just not needed. But again, we miss out on so much when we don't do that. So you're, you're in good company. We've all, we've all been there. We've all had that same mindset, but I appreciate that. And I'm thankful because that was my intent with this is to get into God's word, just dissect it together, break it apart and then start that road of, okay, now that on our own, we're going to go even go deeper, deeper than we could go here. So Thank you for that. Anyone else? A comment or question, thought, something in addition to? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a great point. That, yeah, sometimes God has to take us to one place before we can go somewhere else. Right? Absolutely. Any other thoughts, comments, or questions? All right. Well, we'll go ahead and pray. We'll let you be dismissed. Um, just a reminder, a couple, a couple little quick announcements, I guess I'll say. Um, Widow's Banquet's coming up. So if you're helping with that, um, obviously you need to be here a little earlier. Um, and hopefully you know. Um, I think f- 4? 3.30? Okay. Okay. Right. They should be competent. Yeah, this week. So, yeah, but be praying for that. If you are helping, appreciate that. But um, if you're not able to help or be here or whatever, that's fine. Be praying for Widow's Banquet. Um, I just talked to somebody yesterday 
who uh, I was sharing with them, and they hadn't heard for whatever reason. Um, and they were like, well, I'll let some ladies know or some different people know. So I'm just excited because, it, you know, doing it in the fall, who knew what we were going to get? But it looks like God has really been blessing, and that list is just filling up. And so it's amazing to see people coming out. So be praying for Widow's Banquet. Pray that all goes well, that, that they're encouraged and touched by the love of God. Um, and uh, we want to be praying for that. Also, um, today, last day to sign up for men's Bible study. So if you haven't done that yet, please do so. And so we look forward to Bible study season starting up as well. So again, just be praying for that. Um, I think that's all I got for tonight. So we'll go ahead and pray and let you guys be dismissed. Father, we do thank you so much for your word. That is a guide and a lamp unto our feet. And Lord, we thank you for the example of previous generations of believers that have as was already shared, Lord, that during times of great persecution, even under uh, the death of a martyr, where they're being literally burned at the stake or experiencing great suffering, that their, their response to that wasn't to yell or to get angry or to cry out for vengeance, Lord, but it was to cry out and trust and the, believing that you were with them, that you were delivering them, Lord, even in that moment, that you are greater and that you are greatly to be praised. And so, Father, thank you for that example we can read of church history, of how you moved and, and worked in different generations, Lord, that we can learn from that, Lord. And I pray that as we go through difficult times, and it seems as though we're completely surrounded, as we talked about this morning, that, uh, Lord, that sin that besets us skillfully surrounds us. And, and Lord, yet, even in this case of the psalm where the Assyrians surrounded Jerusalem, and there was, in a, in a literal sense, there was no escape. There was no way to overcome those forces, but you stepped in and you made a way and you were greatly praised and honored as you delivered Jerusalem. And Lord, I believe in a similar sense that when we see sin surround us and it seems as though there's no way we can overcome in ourselves, that you step in, that by the working of your Holy Spirit and the word of God, you give us the strength to overcome, not that we would be praised, but that you would be praised. And so, Father, thank you for these reminders, these encouragements. And I pray that as only you can, that as we go through this week, that you'd help us to keep our eyes on you, the author, the origin of our faith, and the finisher of our faith. Father, thank you for just all that you have done today. Strengthen us now, Lord, as we go into our jobs and into school, in daily life, Lord, that we would look for opportunities to be an example, to be able to share our faith, and Lord, to share the gospel with someone to plant those seeds, to disciple someone. Lord, maybe somebody here uh, this evening is, is not looking forward to uh, going to work tomorrow, is not looking forward to seeing a coworker or a manager. Maybe there's somebody here, Lord, a young person that isn't really looking forward to school tomorrow because of whatever waits, awaits them, Lord, whether it be other students or teachers. Lord, I pray that we would change our perspective, that as followers of Christ, we would realize that you've planted us exactly where you want us, and that as we walk into our schools, we walk into our jobs, that we are called to share your, your, your gospel with them, to share our faith, to look at it as a mission field, as an opportunity to serve you and to honor you. So give us wisdom and guidance and all of that, Lord. Help our hearts and our minds to be focused on you, that we would say and do things that would honor you. And Lord, when we stumble and when we fall, as we all do, whether in something we do or something we say, I pray that we would turn and repent and trust in you, receiving your grace and being restored. Father, again, Go with us now. We ask that you would be glorified in all that we say and do this week ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.